Section 77, Introduction. As Joseph Smith reached the book of Revelation in his revision of the scriptures, he must have felt a keen sense of anticipation. It will be recalled that when Joseph was translating the Book of Mormon, he came to Nephi's vision of the latter days. However, Nephi was not allowed to record what he saw, because the Lord said that part of the vision was being reserved for John the Revelator to record. This is found in 1 Nephi chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. But where did John record it? Was it hidden in the highly symbolic and obscure sections of the book of Revelation, or did he record it in separate scripture, which we have not yet received? As Joseph came to the book of Revelation, he must have asked himself these same questions. We would have hoped that Joseph would be shown whatever Nephi was not allowed to record. But this did not happen. Joseph Smith was only allowed to ask the meaning of certain things in John's revelation. In each case, the Lord gave the key to the symbol about which they asked, but apparently Joseph was given none of the extensive prophetic vision which Nephi was shown. All of that is yet to be revealed. Meanwhile, what were the specific things about which the brethren made inquiry? Here is the revelation given to Joseph Smith during March 1832. What is the sea of glass spoken of by John, 4th chapter and 6th verse of the Revelation? It is the earth in its sanctified, immortal, and eternal state. Later, Joseph Smith amplified this brief statement during a sermon at Ramus, Illinois, on April the 2nd, 1843. He said, quote, This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made likened to a crystal, and will be a urim and thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. Now that's Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 9. In addition to the glorified earth being a urim and thummim to reveal that which is occurring in lower kingdoms, the saints will receive an individual Urim and Thummim with marvelous attributes. The scripture says, quote, Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2 and 17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. Unquote. Now that's Doctrine and Covenants 130 verse 10. This is a new doctrine that there are higher kingdoms than the three degrees of glory mentioned in section 76. What are we to understand by the four beasts spoken of in the same verse? They are figurative expressions used by the Revelator John in describing heaven, the paradise of God, the happiness of man and of beasts and of creeping things and of the fowls of the air that which is spiritual being in the likeness of that which is temporal, and that which is temporal in the likeness of that which is spiritual, the spirit of man in the likeness of his person, as also the spirit of the beast and every other creature which God has created. Verses 8 and 9 of this section indicate that these beasts are engaged in praising God. It even quotes the words which they speak. In Genesis 3, 1 to 5, 
we are told that Satan had a serpent speak to Eve. The fact that the scriptures describe animals as being articulate is worth a brief comment. Josephus, in summarizing the ancient Jewish tradition, states that before the fall, quote, all the living creatures had one language, unquote. William Whiston of Cambridge University comments on this statement in a footnote saying, quote, many inducements there are to a notion that the present state that they, the animals, are in is not their original state and that their capacities have been once much greater than we now see them and are capable of being restored to their former condition, unquote. Now, this is in Eusebius' Antiquities of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 1, Paragraph 4. Are the four beasts limited to individual beasts, or do they represent classes or orders? They are limited to four individual beasts which were shown to John, to represent the glory of the classes of beings in their destined order or sphere of creation, in the enjoyment of their eternal felicity. The fact that the vision represents the individual beasts in their paradisiacal glory and resurrected attributes indicates what a glorious happiness and advanced status of existence these animals enjoy in the next life. What are we to understand by the eyes and wings which the beasts had? Their eyes are a representation of light and knowledge. That is, they are full of knowledge and their wings are a representation of power to move, to act, etc. The fact that these creatures enjoy tremendous light and knowledge and have miraculous capacity to move through the heavenly regions entirely unimpeded demonstrates their remarkable qualities and powers in the next life. What are we to understand by the four and twenty elders spoken of by John? We are to understand that these elders whom John saw were elders who had been faithful in the work of the ministry and were dead, who belonged to the seven churches and were then in the paradise of God. No doubt John was well acquainted with these elders who had served faithfully in the churches of Asia Minor. These elders had completed their earthly careers and passed over into the paradise of God. What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? We are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the seven thousand years of its continuance or its temporal existence. No doubt this book contains something similar to the prophetic history of the world shown to the brother of Jared. Moroni translated the record of the brother of Jared and is that part of the gold plate which we still do not have. What are we to understand by the seven seals with which it was sealed? We are to understand that the first seal contains the things of the first thousand years, and the second also of the second thousand years, and so on until the seventh. The opening of these seven seals is the disclosure of world history. It will reveal the secret acts of men and the mighty acts of God during each of the thousand-year periods. This is described in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 108 to 116. 
We will discuss this marvelous revelation of world history when we come to section 88. What are we to understand by the four angels, spoken of in the seventh chapter and first verse of Revelation? We are to understand that they are four angels sent forth from God, to whom is given power over the four parts of the earth to save life and to destroy. These are they who have the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, having power to shut up the heavens, to seal up unto life, or to cast down to the regions of darkness. The unique thing about these four angels is that they are sent from God with power over the four quarters of the earth. They can either save or destroy all life in their respective jurisdictions. They also have control over the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread it abroad among the nations of their respective regions. These four angels are also the judges over each region to seal up the righteous people to eternal life or to seal up the wicked to a consignment in the depths of hell. This is the first time the scriptures have described the mission of these four angels. What are we to understand by the angel ascending from the east? Revelation 7th chapter and 2nd verse. We are to understand that the angel ascending from the east is he to whom is given the seal of the living God over the twelve tribes of Israel. Wherefore he crieth unto the four angels having the everlasting gospel, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And if you will receive it, this is Elias which was to come to gather together the tribes of Israel and restore all things. We are not given the name of this angel, but he has the seal over the twelve tribes of Israel, including the ten lost tribes who must be gathered out of the north countries and the outermost regions of heaven. This is according to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 3 and 4. This angel petitions the four angels to hold back their destructive power and hurt not the earth, the sea, or the trees until certain servants of God have been sealed in their foreheads. Joseph and Sidney are told that if they are willing to accept this angel ascending from the east, it is the Elias, that is the restorer, possibly John the Beloved, who was to restore all things. The servants of God who are to be sealed in their foreheads may refer to the 144,000 high priests who must be sealed or anointed in the forehead so they cannot be killed as they go forth to seal up the entire population of the earth either to eternal salvation or destruction by burning just before the second coming. The fact that the 144,000 are mentioned in verse 11 gives further support for the thought that it was this group the Lord was talking about in verse 9. What time are the things spoken of in this chapter to be accomplished? They are to be accomplished in the sixth thousand years, or the opening of the sixth seal. Everything described in this section from verse 8a to 9a must have been accomplished in heaven by the end of 2000 A.D. We deduct this from the fact that from Adam to Christ was 4,000 years, and from Christ until 2000 A.D. totaled 6,000 years, 
all of which have now passed. This calculation is based on the current Gregorian calendar, which we presently use. The Lord also uses the Gregorian calendar in the Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 1, and also section 21, verse 3. The fact that the Lord uses this calendar would seem to lend credence to its acceptability to the Lord. Since this appears to be the case, we must recognize that the sixth seal is now over, and we are in the beginning of the seventh seal. What are we to understand by sealing the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe? We are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel, for they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. It is obvious that the selection and anointing of the 144,000 high priests from the 12 tribes of Israel would not occur until the conversion of the Jews after the battle of Armageddon, and also after the return of the lost 10 tribes after the building of the New Jerusalem. So these events must transpire before this prophecy can be fulfilled. The 144,000 missionaries will go out to preach the gospel for the last time and seal up every human being on earth by the power of the priesthood, either to eternal salvation if they accept the gospel and to total destruction by burning if they reject the gospel. This is their last chance. These 144,000 young priests will receive a special anointing so they cannot be killed as they go forth to perform their mission. In other words, they will be like the three Nephites. This is described in 3 Nephi chapter 28, verse 38. John the Beloved saw the day of the coming of the 144,000. He said, quote, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. John goes on to say, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Unquote. This is Revelations chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Orson Pratt describes how the 144,000 will sealed up against the ravages of death. He says, quote, The Lord will purify their bodies until they shall be quickened and renewed and strengthened, and they will be partially changed, as were the three Nephites, but not to immortality. They will be changed in part that they can be filled with the power of God, and they can stand in the presence of Jesus and behold his face in the midst of the temple. Orson Pratt goes on to say, quote, This will prepare them for further ministration among the nations of the earth. It will prepare them to go forth in the days of tribulation and vengeance upon the nations of the wicked, when God will smite them with pestilence, plague, and earthquakes such as former generations never knew. 
When the servants of God will need to be armed with the power of God, they will have to have that sealing blessing pronounced upon their foreheads so they can stand forth in the midst of these desolations and plagues and not be overcome by them. Then Orson Hyde concludes, quote, When they are prepared and when they have received a renewal of their bodies in the Lord's temple and have been filled with the Holy Ghost and purified as gold and silver in a furnace of fire, they will be prepared to stand before the nations of the earth and preach glad tidings of salvation in the midst of judgment that will come like a whirlwind upon the wicked, unquote. And this is in Journal of Discourses, volume 15, pages 165 to 366. Concerning those who reject the message of the gospel, the missionaries will seal them up. And here is what Malachi says will happen to them, quote, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all those who do wickedly shall be as stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch, unquote. And this is in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. What are we to understand by the sounding of the trumpets mentioned in the 8th chapter of Revelation? We are to understand that as God made the world in six days, and on the seventh day he finished his work and sanctified it, and also formed man out of the dust of the earth, even so in the beginning of the seventh thousand years will the Lord sanctify the earth and complete the salvation of man and judge all things and shall redeem all things except that which he hath not put into his power when he shall have sealed all things unto the end of all things. And the sounding of the trumpets of the seven angels are the preparing and finishing of his work in the beginning of the seventh thousand years, the preparing of the way before the time of his coming. Let us comment first of all on the opening portion of this verse, where it says that on the seventh day of the creation, the Lord finished his work and sanctified it, and also formed man out of the dust of the earth. The order of creation in this verse says that it was in the beginning of the seventh day that God finished his work of preparing the earth and sanctified it, and then he brought man in upon the earth. Since the restoration of the gospel, we have learned three marvelous things about the creation which was new to modern scholars. Number one. When Joseph Smith received the book of Moses, this great prophet told us how he received the story of the creation by direct revelation as dictated by God. He describes this in Moses chapter 1. Two, we learn that the first chapter of Genesis is the account of the spirit creation. He describes this in Moses chapter 2. Now number three, in Moses chapter 3 verse 5, the Lord says that everything in the previous chapters was the creation of things before the temporal creation. Quote, For I, the Lord God, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. Unquote. At this point, the Lord leads us to conclude that the physical creation followed the same order and therefore, this brings us up to the point where the earth was ready for habitation by mankind. Now, number four, 
So we have section 77, verse 12, in which the Lord says that on the seventh day of the physical creation, the earth was finished and sanctified. The early brethren knew that the temporal creation took millions of years before the earth was finished, and then the Lord rested, and on the Sabbath day of the temporal salvation, Adam and Eve were brought to the earth. When are the things to be accomplished which are written in the ninth chapter of Revelation? They are to be accomplished after the opening of the seventh seal, before the coming of Christ. This verse places the horrendous events of Revelation chapter 9 at the opening of the seventh seal and just before the second coming of the Savior. There will be wars, plagues, and men will be required to exhibit the mark of the beast or they will be killed. The suffering of humanity will be so intense that many of the wicked will yearn for death, but they cannot die. This is in verse 6. Overall, however, it says a third of the wicked will be slain. This is in verse 15. John even saw a mechanized army of 200 million. This is in verse 16. And he says that in spite of the plagues, wars, and torturous afflictions, the wicked will not repent. Meanwhile, the saints who stay close to the Lord will be protected. The Lord says, quote, Nevertheless, Zion shall escape if she observe to do all things whatsoever I have commanded her. Unquote. This wonderful promise is in Doctrine and Covenants, section 97, verse 25. What are we to understand by the little book which was eaten by John as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation? We are to understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. Behold, this is Elias, who, as it is written, must come and restore all things. For John, this was a highly significant revelation. The angel held out a book which John volunteered to consume. It represented a mission which he would be required to fulfill. He says at first the book was very sweet, but after consuming it, his stomach became very bitter. It represents the great mission he would be required to fulfill to gather the tribes of Israel. What is to be understood by the two witnesses in the 11th chapter of Revelation? They are two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days, at the time of the restoration, and to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem in the land of their fathers. After the gathering of the Jews to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of their temple, the dictator of the Gentiles, named Gog, will attempt to conquer Jerusalem and seize the wealth of the Jews. However, two Jewish prophets will be raised up to resist the dictator by calling down fire from heaven. For three and one-half years, these prophets will hold Gog back by calling down fire from heaven. Finally, however, the ruthless Gentiles will surge forward, break through the city walls, and kill the two prophets. Gog will not allow them to be buried, but after three and a half days, Jesus suddenly appears and commands the two prophets to rise up as resurrected beings and join him. Gog and his armies are then destroyed by fire, and the angel rejoices to announce that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord. 
This is Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. So as Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon came to the conclusion of this revelation, they may well have had more tantalizing questions and answers. Most important of all, they were not given the illuminating revelation which Nephi saw concerning the events of modern times. Nevertheless, Nephi was told that John would record this revelation, and someday we will receive it. Section 78, Introduction During March 1832, Joseph Smith received four revelations while residing at the home of Father Johnson in Hiram Portage County, Ohio. In section 78, we find the Lord addressing Joseph as Enoch and referring to the New Jerusalem in Missouri as the city of Joseph. There must have been some delicate circumstances that made these substitute names temporarily necessary. However, when the circumstances had changed, Joseph went back to put the actual names in their proper places. Earlier, the Lord had talked about the sacred storehouse in connection with the law of consecration. But both the bishop in Missouri and the bishop in Kirtland were struggling with the fair and just assignment of stewardships. Furthermore, many of the new converts to the church were hesitant about entering the law of consecration so that the new converts in modest circumstances were being neglected. Section 78 is therefore specifically addressed to the needs of the poor and establishing the storehouse so that those in need are given more equal status as members of the Lord's kingdom. Now the text of section 78. The Lord spake unto Joseph Smith, Jr., saying, Hearken unto me, saith the Lord your God, who are ordained unto the high priesthood of my church, who have assembled yourselves together. The fact that Joseph has assembled the high priesthood in this region for this special conference would suggest that he is deeply troubled by the problems he wishes to present to the Lord. We don't know exactly why the Lord addressed Joseph Smith as Enoch, unless the problems connected with the poor administration of the law of consecration were extremely delicate, and the recipient of this revelation needed to be temporarily hidden. And listen to the counsel of him who has ordained you from on high who shall speak in your ears the words of wisdom, that salvation may be unto you in that thing which you have presented before me, saith the Lord God. Notice that the problems presented before the Lord are things which were troubling Joseph. They were not issues being raised by the Lord. For verily I say unto you, the time has come and is now at hand. And behold, and lo, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people in regulating and establishing the affairs of the storehouse for the poor of my people, both in this place and in the land of Zion. The subject of the storehouse is nothing new, but apparently it has never been satisfactorily organized and established as described in earlier revelations. These include sections 42, verses 34 and 55. Section 51, verse 13. Section 58, verse 24 and 37. Section 70, verses 7 and 11. Section 72, verse 10. All of these passages emphasize that surplus money and products derived from the consecration of the saints should be sufficient to provide for the poor 
and also for new stewardships among the recent converts. Notice that the Lord wants these storehouses to be filled to overflowing both in Kirtland and in Missouri. For a permanent and everlasting establishment and order unto my church, to advance the cause which ye have espoused to the salvation of man and to the glory of your Father who is in heaven. The Lord said the setting up of these storehouses and the flourishing of the law of consecration is absolutely essential for the rapid growth and advancement of the kingdom. That you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. When the Lord talks about making the people, quote, equal, unquote, in temporal things, he means that the head of each family is supplied with a stewardship and given temporal necessities which are equal, quote, according to his circumstances and his wants and his needs, unquote. Now that's Doctrine and Covenants, section 51, verse 3. However, it adds, but only if his wants and needs are just. And that's in Doctrine and Covenants 82, verse 17. Usually this was worked out between the bishop and the head of each family. Joseph Smith described how this was done. Quote, The matter of consecration must be done by the mutual consent of both parties. For to give the bishop power to say how much every man shall have, and he be compelled to comply with the bishop's judgment, is giving the bishop more power than a king has. And upon the other hand, to let every man say how much he needs, and the bishop be compelled to comply with his judgment, is to throw Zion into confusion and make a slave of the bishop. The fact is there must be a balance or equilibrium of power between the bishop and the people, and thus harmony and a good will may be preserved among you. Joseph Smith therefore continues, quote, Therefore, these persons consecrating property to the bishop in Zion and then receiving an inheritance back must reasonably show to the bishop that they need as much as they claim. But in case the two parties cannot come to a mutual agreement, the bishop is to have nothing to do with receiving such consecrations, and the case must be laid before a council of twelve high priests." Unquote. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 1, pages 364 to 365. It is my personal opinion that the detailed revelation for the setting up of a Zion society was revealed to the Nephite disciples while the Savior was ministering to them. This is deducted from the fact that after the ascension, the Nephite disciples were able to abandon their traditional life under the law of Moses and set up a Zion society that included every living person in America. This is according to 4th Nephi, verses 2 and 3, and lasted nearly 300 years, according to verse 45. Now, so far, the modern church has not received this comprehensive revelation on the broad ramifications of a Zion society, and the fragments of heavenly advice have not been sufficiently detailed to prove entirely practical. It is my opinion that we will receive this revelation when we prove worthy to receive the greater part of the Book of Mormon, which has been deliberately withheld to test the faith of the modern saints. 
And that is set forth in 3 Nephi chapter 26, verses 7 and 9. We will finally know when we have a truly comprehensive Zion society, when we can measure up to the following description among the Nephites, quote, Thus they were all equal, and they did all labor every man according to his strength, and they did impart of their substance every man according to that which he had, to the poor and the needy and the sick and the afflicted, and they did not wear costly apparel, yet they were neat and comely. And thus they did establish the affairs of the church, and thus they began to have continual peace again. And now because of the steadiness of the church, they began to be exceedingly rich, having abundance of all things whatsoever they stood in need. And thus in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send away any who were naked and that were hungry or that were athirst or that were sick or that had not been nourished, and they did not set their hearts upon riches. Therefore they were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. And thus they did prosper and became far more wealthy than those who did not belong to the church." Unquote. All of this is in Alma, chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. For if ye are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. As we have already seen, the Lord's definition of, quote, equal, unquote, is really equality in necessities and equality in opportunity. It does not mean equality in, quote, things, unquote. For example... I am a teacher. I want an adequate library and a stewardship that allows me time to do research, teaching, and writing. I certainly don't want as many cows as my neighbor who runs a dairy. I don't want as many trucks as my neighbor who builds roads. In other words, an equality of, quote, things, unquote, would be a terrible burden to me. For if you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. It is part of celestial law to have everybody happy in the assignment God has given them and to look upon God's commandments as opportunities to be happily engaged in the Lord's work. And now verily thus saith the Lord, it is expedient that all things be done unto my glory by you who are joined together in this order. There is a rich feeling of satisfaction when we are engaged in fulfilling God's commandments. It is hard to explain, but we know that we are doing what the Lord has asked us to do. Or, in other words, let my servant Newell K. Whitney and my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and my servant Sidney Rigdon, Sit in council with the saints which are in Zion. At this point, Newell K. Whitney and Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are notified that they are needed in Missouri. Otherwise, Satan seeketh to turn their hearts away from the truth, that they become blinded and understand not the things which are prepared for them. The Lord says Satan is playing havoc with the doctrines of the church in Missouri. The people are being led astray, 
and completely blinded to the real truth which the Lord has revealed to his servants. Wherefore a commandment I give unto you, to prepare and organize yourselves by a bond or everlasting covenant that cannot be broken. The Lord wants his leaders to enter a covenant that cannot be broken, so that they can undertake this new assignment in Missouri by a solemn oath. As events unfold, we will find that nothing will turn out to be so destructive to the saints in Missouri as the breach of covenants among those who are placed in leadership. And he who breaketh it shall lose his office and standing in the church, and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. During the next few years, certain leaders in the presidency of the church, as well as the apostles who have become confused and embittered, will wander away in apostasy. Behold, this is the preparation wherewith I prepare you, and the foundation and the ensample which I give unto you, whereby you may accomplish the commandments which are given you. The Lord wants these leaders to take their oath or covenant of unity very seriously. It will not only prepare them for their mission, but protect them from dissension and misunderstanding. That through my providence, notwithstanding the tribulation which shall descend upon you, that the church may stand independent above all other creatures beneath the celestial world, it is the Lord's objective to make the church strong, self-sufficient, and independent. Unfortunately, this will not happen. The saints will not be able to measure up to the Lord's aspirations for them, and a flood of tribulation will pour down upon them. Little do the members of the church in Missouri comprehend what anguish and suffering they are going to encounter in the very near future. That you may come up unto the crown prepared for you, and be made rulers over many kingdoms, saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Zion, who hath established the foundations of Adam on Diamond. The Lord wants them to keep in mind that the God they serve is no weakling. He is the one who makes them rulers over many kingdoms, even though they might be driven out of this one. He is the one who established the foundation of Adam on Diamond that has survived for thousands of years who hath appointed Michael your prince, and established his feet, and set him upon high, and given unto him the keys of salvation, under the counsel and direction of the Holy One, who is without beginning of days, or end of life. He has also been the bulwark of strength for Father Adam, who presides over the whole earth under the guidance of God, and holds the keys of salvation for all of the Father's children. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. From the Lord's point of view, the members of the church are virtual infants. They have no conception whatever how the Lord plans to reward them if they will but faithfully prevail in the task that lie before them. And ye cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. The Lord wishes he could share more knowledge of the future with his servants, 
but they are incapable of understanding it or digesting its significance. At this point, the Lord can only lead them along a step at a time and assure them that they will inherit His glorious kingdom and the riches of eternity will be theirs. And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added unto him even an hundredfold, yea, more. If they will just stay with the Savior and accept with thankfulness the riches which he has poured down upon them, all will be well. In fact, what they have received is only a fragment of what he has in store for them in the future. Wherefore, do the things which I have commanded you, saith your Redeemer, even the Son, Amen, who prepareth all things before he taketh you, if only they can prevail over adversity and do the things the Lord has commanded them, then he will prepare greater blessings and treasures for them prior to the time they are taken from off the face of the earth. For ye are the church of the firstborn, and he will take you up in a cloud and appoint every man his portion. And he that is a faithful and wise steward shall inherit all things. Amen. These brethren must never forget that they are the body of Christ's church. If they are still on the earth at the time of the second coming, they will be quickened and carried up in a cloud to be with him. They will then receive their portion of the kingdom, which includes all things. Section 79, Introduction This is the third revelation given during March 1832 at the residence of Father Johnson where Joseph was residing. It is typical of a number of other revelations given to individuals. In section 52, verse 38, Jared Carter was ordained a priest. Now in this revelation, we learn that the Lord wants him to go again into the eastern countries. We conclude from this that he had been ordained an elder and that he had been a very successful missionary since he is again promised many converts. Verily I say unto you that it is my will that my servant Jared Carter should go again into the eastern countries, from place to place and from city to city, in the power of the ordination wherewith he has been ordained, proclaiming glad tidings of great joy, even the everlasting gospel. This verse implies that Jared Carter has already served a mission in the eastern countries or eastern states, and the Lord is assigning him to return to this same region. And I will send upon him the Comforter, which shall teach him the truth and the way whither he shall go. The Lord promises Jared Carter that he will be endowed by the Comforter, which will not only enlighten his mind concerning the profound principles of the gospel truth, but will lead him to the doors of the honest in heart who will be responsive to the gospel message. One of the reasons for the great success of the missionaries in the early history of the church was their complete reliance on the Spirit of the Lord to guide them to rich fields of labor. For example, Wilfred Woodruff was sent to England in 1840 and was sent to the Stratfordshire Potteries, where he labored with success until spring, when he was prompted to go south. He did so, and when he came to Worcester, he felt attracted to the spirit of the United Brethren. 
They had separated themselves from the Wesleyan Methodists and had their own independent congregations. Elder Woodruff began to labor among them, and after a sensational ministry of eight months, he had baptized 1,800 men and women. In fact, he had baptized every single member of the United Brethren except one. And inasmuch as he is faithful, I will crown him again with sheaves. Now the Lord promises Jared Carter in this revelation that if he is faithful on this new assignment, he will once more have a very successful mission and again bring many converts into the church. Wherefore, let your heart be glad, my servant Jared Carter, and fear not, saith your Lord, even Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord therefore tells this missionary to rejoice in his calling. He should not be timid or frightened by the challenge of this new calling, but remember that he is representing the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes from place to place and from city to city. Section 80, Introduction The exact date of this revelation is not known, but the prophet described it as being in March 1832. It was obviously given at the request of Elder Stephen Burnett, and Joseph received it from the Lord while he was residing at the house of Father Johnson in Hiram Portage County, Ohio. The text of section 80. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Stephen Burnett, Go ye, go ye into the world, and preach the gospel to every creature that cometh under the sound of your voice. Probably no revelation to a prospective missionary was given a broader field of labor than this one. As we proceed, it will become apparent that his field of labor is to be any place in the world he chances to teach the gospel. And inasmuch as you desire a companion, I will give unto you my servant Eden Smith. One of the principal reasons Elder Burnett requested this revelation was to have the Lord designate a companion to go with him. The Lord responds to this request by naming Eden Smith as his companion. Wherefore go ye and preach my gospel, whether to the north or to the south, to the east or to the west, it mattereth not, for ye cannot go amiss. The Lord's complete confidence in these two men is demonstrated by allowing them to go north, south, east, or west, because wherever they decide to preach, they, quote, cannot go amiss, unquote. Therefore declare the things which ye have heard, and verily believe, and know to be true. The message which they are to proclaim is that which they have received from the prophet, and which they already have a firm testimony of its truthfulness. Behold, this is the will of him who hath called you, your Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. These two brethren can go into the field knowing that they are fulfilling the will of their Savior, Jesus Christ. If you liked this podcast and would like access to other materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find them online at skousenlibrary.com.